Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 133. This episode is entitled The Real Reasons Why We Have Sex. What is the real story of the birds and the bees? From the BBC.com, an article by Vivian Cumming. The Real Reasons Why We Have Sex The birds, the bees, chimpanzees, humans, we all do it. But few people realise that sexual reproduction actually first evolved in creatures vastly different to ourselves. So what were they and how did they all start? What is the real story of the birds and the bees? The dawn of sexual reproduction has always been a puzzle for scientists. Today on Earth, 99% of multicellular creatures, the big organisms we can see, reproduce sexually. All have their unique mechanisms. But why this process evolved is actually a subject of great mystery. Even for Darwin, the father of evolution, sex was confusing. He wrote in 1862, We do not even in the least know the final cause of sexuality, why new beings should be produced by the union of the two sexual elements. The whole subject is as yet hidden in darkness. Many species are totally preoccupied by sex and will go to great lengths to gain a mate. The male bowbird builds elaborate nests to impress females. The female glowworm's tail burns bright to lure the male. Even the perfume produced by a flower is simply a clever trick to attract insects that will pick up pollen and then make a beeline to neighbouring plants, fertilising them in the process. Even with all this mesmeric diversity, All sexually reproducing organisms follow the same basic route to make new offspring. Two members of the same species combine their DNA to produce a new genome. 
Before sex evolved, all reproduction was done asexually, which basically means by cell division, an organism literally splits in half to form two. It is a simple copy and divide mechanism and is something that all bacteria, most plants and even some animals do at least some of the time. The mechanism of asexual reproduction is much more efficient and less messy than sexual reproduction. An asexual species does not have to waste time and energy searching for and impressing a partner. They just grow and divide into two. Contrast that with the troublesome and sometimes dangerous process of attracting a mate for sexual reproduction. And then there are the other obvious costs of sex. Joining together chunks of two separate genomes requires a different kind of process. An egg must be fertilised. It also means each parent only passes half of its genes to the offspring. Asexual parents, in contrast, produce offspring that are basically carbon copies of themselves which sounds like a better approach for a world in which we are told that our genes selfishly want to guarantee their survival. So bearing all this in mind, why should so many species take the long and winding route of sexual reproduction when a straightforward path is available? Sex must offer some evolutionary advantage that outweighs the obvious disadvantages. In 1886, German evolutionary biologist August Weismann proposed one such advantage. He said that sexual reproduction shuffles genes to create individual differences upon which natural selection acts. Basically, sex is an opportunity for two organisms in the same species to pool their resources. Some of their offspring will carry a beneficial mix of good genes from both parents, meaning they will respond better to environmental stresses that would leave asexual species in grave danger. In fact, sex may even speed up the pace of evolution, an obvious advantage if the environmental conditions are changing rapidly too. Ultimate proof of these benefits of sex comes from studies in which asexually reproducing species have been coaxed into becoming sexually reproducing ones. Primitive single-celled organisms usually do just fine with asexual reproduction. But if environmental stresses are high, they can turn into sexual species. Environmental stress can be anything from a slight change in the weather to a meteor strike. The origin of sexual reproduction has long been a mystery, partly because we observe the world as it is now where many asexual organisms thrive and some organisms that can reproduce in both ways still seem to favour asexual reproduction. Some of these organisms include yeast, snail, starfish and aphids. But actually the method of reproduction they choose depends on the environmental circumstances surrounding them. Most reproduce sexually only during times of stress and reproduce asexually the rest of the time. But the early world was a much more inhospitable place, with the environment often changing very rapidly. In these circumstances, high mutation rates could have, under the right conditions, forced an asexual organism 
to become sexual. The fossil record held within rocks can tell us more about the origin of sexual reproduction. But fossils are sparse and hard to find, so it is difficult to tell exactly what happened. Chris Sadami of Michigan State University looks at the process theoretically. Adami explains that you can look at evolution in terms of information, the things you need to know to be able to survive. Evolution is about information preservation and information acquisition. The more you know, the better you are, he says. So it is a learning process. An organism learns new information, especially in a changing environment, and the organism passes these lessons on in its DNA, to the next generation to help them survive. Sex allows this to happen more efficiently, offering an easier way for species to remember useful information. It is coded in their genes. This is because the process involves choosing a sexual partner that has itself reached sexual maturity by making good choices. Sex means choosing a good partner and therefore choosing a better future for your offspring. Acquisition and maintenance of information are necessary for evolution to work, remembering the old and imagining the future. This element of choice helps explain another puzzle. Why do we need males? If only half of your offspring, daughters, will actually produce offspring, why did evolution bother with sons? Why not have all offspring be capable of producing young? Darwin's solution to the male mystery was to suggest that natural selection was not the only evolutionary pressure at work in sex. There was something else going on, something Darwin called sexual selection. This is basically a preference by one sex for certain characteristics in individuals of the other sex. A study published in 2015 found that it is vital for males to compete for reproduction and females to choose between those competing males. Sexual selection through the existence of two sexes maintains population health and protection against extinction. It helps maintain a positive genetic variation in a population. When out-competing rivals and attracting partners in the struggle to reproduce... An individual has to be good at most things. So sexual selection provides an important and effective filter to maintain and improve population genetic health. The findings help explain why sex persists as a dominant mechanism for producing offspring. It ultimately dictates who gets to reproduce their genes into the next generation. Sex is a widespread and very powerful evolutionary force. But when did the evolution of sex actually happen, and what kinds of creatures were the first to start doing it? Most thinking people accept the theory of evolution, that humans evolved from a common ancestor we share with apes, which in turn evolved from even more primitive organisms. These thoughts date back to 1871, when Darwin published The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. The evolution of sex as we know it can actually be traced back much further than our ape-like ancestors, though. It goes back at least as far as a primitive fish called Microbrachiosticiae. 
The fossil evidence for this was found in a 385 million year old rock in Scotland. Microbrachius means little arms. But it was only recently that scientists realised what these arms were for. There are small suckers on the arms, and careful analysis of the fossils showed that the female fish's versions had little plates that locked the male versions into place. Not unlike Velcro, the arms were involved in sexual reproduction. Not just any sort of sexual reproduction, though. These fish were the earliest vertebrates we know that reproduced through internal fertilisation, like humans do. They were also the first species to display what biologists called sexual dimorphism. Males and females look different from one another. Most fish today actually reproduce by releasing eggs and sperm outside of the body. Researchers are unsure why M. dickii developed an internal fertilisation system, but the fact that it did paved the way for sexual reproduction in its most familiar form. To understand the real origin of sexual reproduction, though, we have to go back in time even further. We know that all sexually reproducing organisms derived from one common ancestor. So it is a matter of analysing the clues held within a sparse fossil record to know where and when this ancestor lived. It is rocks in Arctic Canada that hold the clues scientists are looking for. The rocks were deposited in marine tidal environments 1.2 billion years ago and they contain fossils that tell us about the first sexual reproduction. A fossil called Bangiomorpha pubescens is a multicellular organism that reproduced sexually. The oldest reported occurrence in the fossil record, B. pubescens was not a fish or even an animal. It was a form of red algae or seaweed. It was a seaweed that first had sex. The evidence that these fossils sexually reproduced is in the finding that the spores or reproductive cells they generated came in two forms, male and female. Today we know that red algae lack sperm that actively swim. They rely on water currents to transport their reproductive cells, which is likely how they have been doing it for at least 1.2 billion years. Red algae is one of the largest and oldest groups of algae, with about 5,000 to 6,000 species of predominantly multicellular marine algae, including many notable seaweeds. They are a very diverse group, and they have remained very similar in appearance for 1.2 billion years. This longevity means they can be described as living fossils. They are a remnant of the past to remind us of where we come from. It is the unusually harsh and changing environment that B. pubescens lived in that may have caused sex to evolve 1.2 billion years ago. Galen Halverson at McGill University in Montreal, Canada explains, With respect to climate, it appears that the Bangiomorpha pubescens fossils appeared about the same time that hundreds of millions of years of relative environmental stasis had come to an end. We see major perturbations in the carbon and oxygen cycles at this time, suggesting major environmental shifts. At this time, sex was critical for the subsequent success and evolution of multicellular organisms. 
These fossils therefore mark significant advances in the evolution of life. Helderson adds, What the connections are between sexual reproduction, multicellularity, oxygenation and the global carbon cycle remain nebulous. But it is not hard to presume that these events are closely linked. Studying these rocks to understand the kind of environment that allowed sex to evolve and consequently to understand the origin of multicellularity on our planet not only informs our past and where we come from, but also the potential for life to evolve on other planets. It is hard to imagine seaweed being the instigator of the sexual revolution. But it was these significant evolutionary developments 1.2 billion years ago, that paved the way for life on Earth as we know it. Well, after getting a little carried away with Pomp and Circumstance, March number 1 by Edward Elgar, stirring up my British ancestry and my British roots, I suppose, in a way, it's all leading up to this story from thelistverse.com. The Top 10 Bizarre British Ceremonies. And this is written by Ben Gaza. All countries have their idiosyncratic traditions, and Britain is no different. Having not undergone any huge or lasting revolution, however, has allowed its traditions to last. 
This has left the culture of Britain with some downright bonkers ceremonies dotted about. Here are ten of the strangest events on the British calendar. Number ten. The opening of Parliament. The marriage of a monarchy with a democracy can be a rocky one. Just ask the severed head of Charles I. In the old days when monarchs held almost all the power, a parliament was only called when the crown needed to raise money by taxes, which could only be levied with the consent of the commons. Now parliament holds all the power, but they can still only meet when called by the crown. So every May, the monarch goes to the Palace of Westminster to open a fresh session of Parliament. Before the Queen arrives, yeomen of the guard in festive striped uniforms search the vaults underneath for gunpowder to check that Guy Fawkes has not inspired some modern regicide. Also, an MP is taken to Buckingham Palace as a hostage to ensure the Queen's safety. Due to the past rancorous relationship between the Crown and Parliament, the Queen is not allowed into the House of Commons. She goes to the House of Lords and sends a messenger, the gentleman usher of the Black Rod, to call the Commons to her. The doors of the Commons are slammed in Black Rod's face to show who is boss. Then MPs go to the other place anyway. To make sure that all is done in proper order, People with magnificent titles, such as Garter King of Arms, Fitzalan, Perseverant Extraordinary, and Maltravers Herald Extraordinary, join the procession of the Queen. Number 9. Weighing the Mayor of Wycombe. As long as there have been public officials, there have been those who take a little too much for themselves from the public purse. In High Wycombe in 1678, they had a particularly agrarious mayor, Henry Shepherd. When his time in office was up, they rang church bells and literally drummed him out of town. To make sure that no one ever repeated his actions, the town came up with a novel solution. Every year they weigh the mayor and other councillors in public. If they are found to have gained weight, Presumably from living too well at public expense, they are jeered by the crowd. Today's mayors should count themselves lucky. In the past, the portlier public servants were pelted with rotten fruit. 8. Nolly's Rose Ceremony 14th century London was a dirty place, even more so than today. The streets were narrow, muddy and seething with animal and human filth. For Lady Constance Nollies there was another nuisance. Across the road from her house was a threshing ground, blowing dust and chaff into her garden. She dealt with this problem by buying the land and turning it into a rose garden. But how to get to this garden without exposure to the grimy street? She built, without authority, a walkway above the road. For her illegal bridge... Lady Nollies was fined by the Lord Mayor. The price? A single red rose. Since the fine was to be paid by her and her heirs and assigns forever, the ceremony still occurs every year. A red rose is cut, placed on a velvet cushion, and paraded through the streets of London to Mansion House 
where it is presented to the Lord Mayor. 7. Election of the Mayor of Ock Street Weighing your mayor is not the only way to guarantee his civil virtue. In Abingdon, they rely on the mock mayor of Ock Street. People living on or near Ock Street would vote for one of their own to act as their unofficial mayor. The mayor elected would have the right and duty to tell the real mayor when he is messing up, like a court jester being allowed to mock a king. Though it is now a more ceremonial role, the elections are still held. When the Ock Street mayor is elected, he is carried in a chair covered in flowers through the streets by the Ock Street horns. This is a wooden bull's head on a pole which commemorates a brawl in 1700 over who would receive the horns of an ox roasted in the market. 6. Clipping the Church How do you show your love for your church? Has it ever occurred to you to actually hug it? This is what the ceremony of church clipping literally does. On Shrove Tuesday, Easter Monday or another holy day associated with the church, the congregation will surround the building hand in hand in a great circle. Hymns are sung, a dance may be done and then all at once the people will rush to the church to embrace it. No one knows the origins of this ceremony, but its name is thought to derive from the Anglo-Saxon clippen, meaning to clasp or embrace. Number five, the Dunmo Flitch. The bacon was not fit for him, I trow, that some men han in excess at Dunmo. And that's from Chaucer, the wife of Bath's prologue. Usually, the reward for a happy marriage is not having a miserable life. In Dunmo, in Essex, they do things a little differently. If you and your spouse will swear and prove that neither of you in a year and a day, neither sleeping or walking, repented of their marriage, you will be awarded a flitch, or side of bacon. A jury of six bachelors and six maidens listen as the couple gives evidence and their testimony is questioned by a lawyer acting for the bacon. The successful spouses are carried through the streets alongside their well-earned breakfast. 4. John Stowe New Quill Born in 1515, John Stowe was like many writers in that he kept another job to earn enough to keep writing. By trade he was a tailor, but he is considered the father of London history for his epic survey of London. His tomb takes the form of Stowe writing at his desk, except he lacks one thing, a quill. In place of a stone quill, a real one is placed in his hand every three years by the Merchant Tailors' Company and the Lord Mayor of London. Number three, planting the penny hedge. The tradition of planting the penny hedge sounds like a delightful children's game. In fact, the story behind it involves the murder of a holy man. In 1159, three hunters pursued a boar until it sought sanctuary in a hermit's home. When the hermit refused to let their dogs in, the hunters attacked him. As he lay dying, the hermit offered to forgive them if they and their heirs performed a penance. 
Their task was to plant a penance hedge, hence Penny Hedge. Each year on Ascension Day, under the supervision of the bailiff of the manor of filing, a small hedge of nine hazel saplings is planted by the harbour. On completion, a ram's horn is blown three times. For the penance to be paid, the hedge must stand for three tides. Number two, beating the bounds. In the days before detailed maps, it was important that boundaries not be forgotten. To make sure everyone knew in which parishes things were, the people of a parish would go and beat the bounds. This took, and still takes, the form of parishioners striking markers on boundaries with wooden wands. The custom was found in Anglo-Saxon times and may even be linked to Roman customs. High Wycombe, not content with weighing mares, beats its bounds in a unique way. They bash a child's head against a box at various locations to mark their boundaries. And finally, number one, up Helly A. Unlike most of the ceremonies on this list, Upheli A is not ancient. Their website claims it originated in the 1880s. It is, however, one of the most impressive British traditions. Held every year in Lerwick, Shetland, the festival involves 1,000 men, jarls dragging their leader, the Gwaiza jarl, in a replica Viking ship through the streets. Once in place, the procession circles the ship with flaming torches. At the blow of a horn, they throw the torches onto the ship and four months of hard work by the ship's builders goes up in smoke. And if you visit the show notes, there's quite a good drawing or photograph to go with each of these ten parts. Zorro is one of the icons of 20th century culture. Although he is a fictional character, his story was based on biographies of at least three men. Juan Nepomuceno Cortina, Tibercio Vasquez, and the most important to the legend, Joaquin Murrieta. His name was used in the movies with Antonio Banderas, whose character's surname is Murrieta. Moreover, his son is Joaquin. The premiere of the movies The Mask of Zorro in 1998 and The Legend of Zorro in 2005 brought back to life the legend of Joaquin Murrieta. Joaquin Murrieta was born around 1829 in Hermosillo in the state of Sonora in Mexico. His life took place mostly in California, where he went looking for gold during the California gold rush of the 1850s. From the ancientorigins.net, a story by Matalia Klimzak, Joaquin Murrieta, the man whose life provided inspiration for Zorro. Murrieta faced racism from white Americans, causing him to rebel against society and its rules. He stood up for the rights of Native American mines and eventually went on to become a very successful miner himself. 
This attracted jealousy from the white Americans who raped his wife in revenge and violently beat him. During this period, there was an illegal trade of horses taking place, which Murrieta joined and his fellow traders helped to track down and kill most of those responsible for the attack on his wife. This was the beginning of Murrieta's gang, which began attacking trains in California. It is unknown exactly how many people were in his gang. Some believe that there were only five, so they were called the Five Murrieta's Gang or the Five Joaquins. Others suggest a much bigger group. The gang murdered at least 14 Anglo-Americans and 28 Chinese. But the people who lived in nearby villages started to protect Murrieta and his gang. As legends of America states, Murrieta had become a folk hero who had only turned to a life of crime after a mob of American miners had beaten him severely and left him for dead, hanged his brother and raped and killed his wife. Joaquin was a dashing, romantic figure that, swearing to avenge the atrocities committed upon his family, committed his many crimes only in an effort to right the many injustices against the Mexicans. Some recordings about his life suggest that there could have been more than one man whose actions created the legend of the Mexican Robin Hood. However, historical records about Murrieta, which could confirm the truth about his life, are scarce, and so the stories of his deeds remain little more than folk tales. In 1853, the California State Legislature enlisted a group known as the California Rangers to catch and kill Murrieta and his gang. They were a group of old veterans of the Mexican-American War. They received a payment of $150 per month to seek him out and an additional $1,000 for the death of Murrieta and his gang. Murrieta and at least two other men were officially killed on January 25, 1853. As evidence of execution, the California Rangers cut off Murrieta's head and delivered it in a jar of brandy. However, reports began to emerge that the head, which had been displayed in Stockton, San Francisco, and the mining camps of Mariposa County, was not the true head of Murrieta. According to official descriptions published by the editor of the San Francisco Alta in August 23, 1853, a few weeks ago a party of native Californians and Sonorans started for the Tolaire Valley for the expressed and avowed purpose of running Mustangs. Three of the party have returned and report that they were attacked by a party of Americans and that the balance of their party, four in number, had been killed. That Joaquin Valenzuela was one of them, was killed as he was endeavouring to escape, and that his head was cut off by his captors and held as a trophy. It is too well known that Joaquin Murrieta was not the person killed by Captain Harry Love's party at the Panache Pass. The head recently exhibited in Stockton bears no resemblance to that individual and that is positively asserted by those who have seen the real Murrieta and the spurious head. In 1879, the sister of Murrieta claimed that the head she saw in the jar did not belong to her brother. She had not spoken up earlier as she wanted to protect her brother and allow him to escape. 
Her claims have never been confirmed because the preserved head was destroyed in a fire during the earthquake in San Francisco in 1906. The story of Murrieta did not end with his supposed death and disappearance. He had a follower in his nephew, who was known as Procopio. He was also called Red-Handed Dick, a nickname given due to his red hair. He became one of the most famous bandits in the entire history of Mexico. When Murrieta died, Procopio was only 12 years old, but he grew up in the cult of his uncle. During his lifetime, he did all he could to increase the popularity of the legend of Murrieta. Due to his actions, the story of Oakin became so widespread that in 1919, Johnston McCulley published a story, The Curse of Capistrano, which was inspired by the legend of the man who was protecting the poor and punishing the rich. The fame of Murrieta was both good and bad. Some people considered him little more than a murdering bandit, but most people saw in him a great patriot who loved his nation. Murrieta became a character of many books and poems. The most famous one of them by John Rowland Ridge, a descendant of a Cherokee leader, which was published in the California Police Gazette in 1858. Until now, in some poor states of Mexico, people like to tell the story of Murrieta or Zorro, the fox, and dream that one day another like him will emerge and help them in their struggles. from the coolinterestingstuff.com website. The strange con of the Antonia Maria Esquivel painting. The painting pictured above, according to Wikipedia, is a self-portrait of and by a 19th century Spanish artist named Antonia Maria Esquivel. Per other accounts, though, Esquivel didn't create the picture. It was one of the many works by a much more famous Spanish artist, Francisco Goya, who is known most often simply as Goya. Those reports are probably wrong. When Goya died in 1828, Esquivel was a barely 22-year-old nobody, and if you look closely, you'll see that Esquivel signed the work. But it didn't really matter because when two Catalan brothers bought the painting above in 2003 for 270,000 euros, they were convinced that they were getting a legitimate Goya. They weren't. It gets worse. They weren't even getting a legit Esquivel. The brothers thought they were buying the picture above, but, well, they bought the painting below instead. For the time being, ignore the piles of money. We'll get there. The paintings have some pretty obvious differences, at least when viewed at the same time. But we can forgive the two brothers for not noticing at first. Ultimately, though, the brothers figured out that they were the victim of a ruse and did early enough where they were able to get out of the deal with only a €20,000 loss, the deposit they put down. 
they were allowed to retain the painting as part of the now aborted deal too. It was likely worthless, of course, unless you can find another sucker who thinks it's a real Goya. And that is exactly what the brothers did next. It's not so easy to sell an expensive piece of legitimate art, let alone one with dubious credentials and being sold by someone without much of a reputation in the art-dealing world. Even in the best cases, you need to find someone with a lot of money, and that can be hard to do. But thankfully for the brothers, they were somehow put in contact with a character that the Independent called a mysterious Italian middleman. And not having the value of hindsight, they didn't see the inherent dangers of working with someone who would later be described as a mysterious middleman. The middleman's contact on the other end was an Arab sheik, awash in money, more money than he could ever spend on practical items. But a -a one-of-a-kind painting by Goya, well, that sounded like a good thing to buy. The sheik agreed to a price of 4 million euros, payable in equivalent Swiss francs and over a few instalments. The only catch was that the middleman demanded 300,000 euros as a premium from the sellers the day before the first payment came due. He apparently wasn't being paid by the sheik, or perhaps was playing both sides. Regardless, the brothers borrowed 300,000 euros from a friend and the next day travelled to Turin, Italy to collect the first payment for the painting. According to Artnet, the middleman delivered the first payment, the equivalent of 1.5 million euros, in the form of 1.7 million Swiss francs, as promised. It looked like the sheik was out a lot of money. But he wasn't. The brothers left Italy and went to Geneva, Switzerland to deposit their newfound riches, only to find out that the Swiss francs weren't legal tender. They were photocopies. The image above with the counterfeit painting? The money pictured is counterfeit too. The sheik had paid for the fake Goya with fake cash. The brothers left Geneva with their fake money and travelled to France, where customs officials found the counterfeit currency and notified Spanish authorities. The two brothers were later arrested in Spain for fraud. They were trying to sell a fake Goya, after all. Oh, and the middleman, and Sheik, if he existed, absconded with the 300,000 euros. And if you visit the show notes at origins.info and click on the links to the Mysteries Abound show notes in episode 133 and then on the link to this article, you can get a look at the two paintings. from the newdawnmagazine.com website. The Gympie Pyramid. Evidence of an ancient civilization in Australia. And this is by Gordon D.L. Marshall. The Gympie Pyramid near the town of Gympie in Queensland, Australia, has long been a source of fascination for people from around the world, as well as Australia, and the subject of a great many claims about its origin and true purpose. Archaeologist Greg Jeffries, who has worked on the pyramid, refers to it as a serious, famous and unexplained archaeological anomaly, 
Unfortunately, academia and the government dismissed the pyramid on the grounds that it is a 19th century or even more recent construction for the purpose of growing grapes. Ignore evidence to the contrary and refuse to conduct an excavation which would settle the matter. What is known as the Gympie Pyramid is the rounded eastern end of a sandstone ridge north of the town of Gympie that had stone terraces cut into the sides, giving it a pyramidal shape. It is not a pyramid in the Egyptian or South American sense. The pyramid is approximately 5 kilometres from the centre of Gympie and is located north of the town on the Tin Can Bay Road. Its interior remains unknown and has been a source of speculation and there are believed to be three or four entrances, some blocked, leading into it. The pyramid is 30.4 metres high and has six stone terraces, varying from 10 metres wide at the bottom to 2 metres wide at the top, and incorporates some natural rock features. Stone for many of the terraces has been shaped and squared, and some of the larger stones would be extremely heavy. On the summit is a sort of turret, an upstanding section made of dry stone walls with a depressed centre, and nearby there are two very heavy stone grinders, which may have been used to prepare ritual offerings. There is also a pile of stones that look like a collapsed building. Three large flat stones roughly shaped as diamonds have been found on the site. These have slots in the centre, which may have been for offerings and iron bars have been found on the site that fill the slots. The terraces were believed to have been up to three metres high, but have become lower due to cattle and weathering. The pyramid is originally thought to have been terraced on three sides, but much of these were destroyed by bulldozing, or early or later settlers carting away the stone for building purposes. An interesting little stone-lined cell has recently been found at the base of the pyramid. The pyramid currently has large trees growing on it, which make it difficult to recognise at any distance or to photograph. The would-be researcher of the Gympie project has to wade through a great deal of oral history and myth associated with it, and also try to sort out the different variations on the stories. When the pyramid was first discovered, the summit is believed to have had 13 pillars surrounding a round stone table with a hollow centre standing on the summit and a stone gateway standing on the lower slopes of the pyramid and other standing stones inscribed with symbols. Most of these are believed to have been removed by early settlers. Fortunately, they were recorded in a diary by John Green, a great-grandfather of Brett Green, a local historian who has spent much of his life researching the pyramid and is the author of a book entitled The Gympie Pyramid Story. Gold was found at Gympie in 1867 and settlement began from that year. Early settlers naturally regarded the pyramid as an easy source of stone and it was quarried to supply new buildings, doing much damage and removing all the inscribed stones. Inscribed stones from the gateway were apparently found quite recently under the floor of one of Gympie's churches, from where they vanished. The pyramid became a source of much speculation and interest as unusual phenomena were reportedly seen or experienced on it, and unusual artefacts found nearby suggesting contact with earlier civilizations, and was given publicity by writer Rex Gilroy.
Another pyramid or a building which looked like one is believed to have existed at what is now Tin Can Bay on the coast from Kimpi. Tin Can Bay has nothing to do with Tin Cans. The name is believed to be a corruption of Tuncumba, the Aboriginal name for Dugong, possibly the indigenous name of the bay. The area was taken over as an army base, and the story relates that the pyramid was covered with earth and used for target practice. However, subsequent damage to the pyramid resulted in the discovery of carved stones used in its construction. At this point, the army became worried about losing land to heritage purposes and destroyed the pyramid. The carved stones were reputedly crushed and used to fill a creek, or else taken out and dumped in deep water. This is believed to have taken place either in the 1940s, after World War II, or in the 1950s. One of the people who took part agreed to be interviewed last year and mysteriously died on the day of the interview, the large police presence at the death causing some surprise. Other pyramids have reputedly been found around Australia. The well-known surveyor Len Beadle is said to have found a pyramid on the Nullarbor Plain and was told by the local Aborigines that the pyramid was outside the Dreamtime and that it was very bad luck to talk about it. The pyramid is said to be made of stone and largely buried, which is why it has not been located on Google Earth. More recently, a passenger plane flying across central Australia saw a pyramid in the desert north of Alice Springs. One needs to bear in mind that central Australia used to be a lush area several millennia ago. A prophecy exists to the effect that a pyramid will be found in central Australia sometime this century, and that this site will be a major spiritual centre. Other pyramids are believed to have been seen in New South Wales. There has been no major archaeological excavation of the Gympie Pyramid. An archaeological survey was undertaken by Michael Moorwood in 1967. For some unknown reason, this report is unobtainable. He attributed the construction of the terraces to Italian wine growers or other immigrants in the 19th century. This idea was laid to rest by archaeologist Greg Jeffries, who did a survey while a student in 1990, and another survey and a limited excavation in 2007. Jeffries found that the terraces were in some cases constructed with very heavy stones, some in excess of one tonne in weight, and the terraces were too high for cultivation, the more so when you consider that they became more pronounced towards the top of the pyramid. Inspection of the soil in the terraces reveals only poor or rather thin native soils, becoming sandy in the top trenches and show no sign of backfilling with more fertile soils. There is no trace of old vine stems or roots or trellises, such as one would associate with former vine cultivation, and there is no equipment for winemaking in the way of vats, etc. There would have been a major problem with watering the terraces, and there is no visible sign of any of the pipes and pumps that would have been necessary. Greg also found that the existing side of the pyramid faces southeast, making it unsuitable for wine growing. Vine cultivators are advised to use areas facing north. He also found there had been no Italian community in Gympie before World War II, and research in the land's titles office indicated that in any case, the land had not been owned by the people credited with farming it. 
Group points out that it would also be very unlikely for would-be cultivators to go to the trouble and effort of constructing the terraces, when there is far better and far more suitable land nearby. Terraces are not usually constructed for agricultural purposes unless there is a shortage of arable land, which is certainly not the case in Gympie. Work with the Bobcat in 2007 revealed how very poor the soil in the terraces were. The Aborigines did not build a pyramid and are not known to have constructed stone terraces anywhere in Australia or to have shaped stones. If anything, they were afraid of the site and left it alone. Aborigines taken to it in recent times declared they felt sick and wanted to leave. Quite possibly it was regarded as a place of evil spirits. Jeffries has pointed out that the Polynesians had a tradition of terracing hills for forts and religious purposes, of which examples exist on Reatea and Tonga that bear a resemblance to the Gympi terraces, so the pyramid could be of Polynesian origin. If so, nothing else has been found on it to support this theory. Dowsing has indicated that there are a number of burials on the pyramid, but these have not been dug. If so, this would suggest a sacred site. The purpose of the pyramid is not known. Greg Jeffries points out that it would have made a good fort given its location, but there is no evidence for this, and it does not feel like one. It quite possibly had a ritual function, particularly given the pillars on the summit, and was possibly also used as an observatory. If it involved a ritual function, then very possibly there would have been connections with the stars. However, at the present time, it can only be concluded the pyramid was built by unknown people for unknown purposes. One of the great mysteries of all time has finally been solved from the hellogiggles.com website. Science has figured out why dogs love to stick their heads out of car windows. And this is by Lillian Min. Sometimes when I want to feel particularly alert while being driven around in a car, I'll put the window down and stick my head out of the window taking in the passing breeze and letting it essentially wake me up. These moments are generally good. It feels good both to simply stick your head out of the window as well as being driven around. It turns out dogs have similar reasons for always sticking their heads out of cars. They like taking in as much of the world as possible and associate those experiences as positive. While there are competing studies observing different aspects of why dogs stick their head out of moving car windows, they all agree on the fact that this is a uniform behaviour and one that's linked, consciously or not, to various forms of position reinforcements. There's the idea that dogs with their acute senses of smell take in vigorous whips of information via their window excursions, 
For them, the moments in which they're sticking their noses into a slew of new and exciting smells are intoxicating. However, there are other studies which pay less attention to the possible pleasurable reasoning behind dog behaviour and instead focus more on the role of social training. Perhaps dogs, when they're in cars, are participating in their own form of pack behaviours. After all, humans also love to stick their heads and limbs out of car windows, so it seems natural that dogs might mimic their owner's behaviour. There's also the fact that for most dogs, being driven in a car might be a rarish occasion, one that they mark in their own particular way. That is, sticking their head out of the window. Most likely, the true reasoning behind dogs' behaviours with windows is a combination of all of those things. Or perhaps we humans are just overthinking the intent behind the motion. Sometimes, all you want out of a window breeze is the breeze itself. It isn't a reflection of some other instinct or some other want. But considering the important role that canines play in human society, it's not surprising that we want to peer closer into their brains and try to understand them better on our own terms. Yet in the end, dogs are just as predictable and yet unique as people are. And sometimes they might just want to feel the wind whipped past them on a hot day, on a cool night, as the sights stream past at a cinematic clip. And from the creepypasta.com A story by Varen Ron Ruthless, 91 By the light of a dying fire Ever since history began, mankind has been fascinated by fire. In the days of the caveman, the hunter's campfire was often the only thing that protected our prehistoric ancestors from the predators that prowl the dark. The scenario must have been terrifying as the cavemen sat around their fire, knowing that death watched from the shadows. Something about this experience must have imprinted itself upon the human race back in those days, for even today a campfire can bring a chill to most people's spine. Given the right circumstances, and one of the favourite pastimes on camping trips is to sit around the fire and tell scary stories. Many may find this tradition old-fashioned and cheesy, but I always felt a small thrill whenever the talk would turn to tales of the dark and disturbing while I was in the Boy Scouts. There is one night in particular that sticks in my memory, and when I tell people about it, they are surprised that I am not in therapy. People sometimes ask me what the scariest thing I have ever experienced is. They are usually surprised when I tell them that I have to think about it for a while. 
I may not look like the sort of person that strange things happen to, but I have had far more than my fair share of weirdness in my life. This is one such story. To begin with, I have to provide some background information. I am the oldest son of a large family and I live in the northeastern United States. I have had to fudge the names of people and geographic locations, although some people may be able to recognise the places and people I am referring to. One of the greatest joys of my life in high school were my activities with the Boy Scouts. I am an Eagle Scout and a Brotherhood member of the Order of the Arrow, Scouting's Honour Society, so I am no stranger to the outdoors. In fact, I so love scouting that once I was old enough, I joined the staff of Six Hills Scout Camp as a summer camp counsellor. Like most summer camp workers, I had co-workers who were among the most awesome people that I have ever met, some who I wish I had never met, and a whole lot of people in between. The two people that I hung out with the most were my friends Toffa and Joe. I actually ended up going to the same college as Toffa and our camping experiences were how we became friends. But that's another story. Toffa was a very logical guy who loved studying the plants and animals of the wilderness and frequently expounded upon them at length, while Joe was more bookish and shy. The three of us were about the same age and after our junior year of college, Joe found himself a girlfriend named Anne who frequently visited the camp. Unfortunately for every Toffer and Joe, there was a Kyle. Kyle was one of those people who made my skin crawl, and yet for some reason most women found him irresistible. Kyle would frequently string along several lovesick girls at once, use them for what he wanted, drop them in the dirt afterwards and then brag about it. Needless to say, no one could stand him, and the only reason he was on camp staff was because his uncle was camp director. The last person on camp staff to play into this story was Bert. Bert ran the camp's health lodge and was primarily responsible for giving out medications to the campers that needed it. The fact that Bert was in charge of the health lodge was a source of great amusement to most of the campers as he was very old and not in the best shape. In fact, he often drove around the camp in a golf cart as he couldn't walk long distances very well. In spite of this, Bert was actually a pretty cool guy once you got to know him. He was an Eagle Scout and had travelled around the world a good deal, although he was very reticent about why he travelled so much. If he got talking, he could tell you some fascinating stories about the things he had done or the legends he had heard. As the last week of summer camp drew to a close that year, there was a sense of melancholy among the staff members. As much as the kids had driven us crazy, we would miss them. The last of the scout troops had left that morning and Joe and Toffer and I were sitting around a campfire as the last of the evening light faded. As usual, the talk turned to scary stories, but we found that we had run through most of the classic ones already. The tales of Hook Hand, Don't Turn on the Light, and the Licked Hand had already been told, and we were running short of ideas. It was Anne who finally came up with a solution. Hey, she said, why don't we tell each other the scariest true story that we know? Here we go with a Baron Von Ruthless 91 and that Aztec idol again, says Toffer. Don't even joke about that, I replied. 
That is a long story which I am not going into right now. I'll go first, volunteered Anne. Have you guys heard about those murders that happened up on the Midstate Trail a few miles from here? We agreed that we had. The campus had spoken of little else for the last couple of weeks. Well, continued Anne, you guys don't know the full story. The cops are treating it as a homicide because one of the guys was tied to a tree before he was killed. The strange thing is that the other man and woman who were with him were practically torn to pieces. They found parts of them up to a mile away from where they were killed. What type of man could do something like that? They also say some other hikers on the trail have been hearing strange sounds in the night. Probably a coyote or a fox, suggested Joe. They make pretty weird sounds sometimes. Not like this they don't, said Anne. That's how I found out about all this stuff. My dad is a zoologist and they brought him a recording of the sounds the hikers heard on the trail. He said it definitely wasn't any animal he had ever heard. The strange thing is this. If some kind of animal killed those three people, how did that one guy end up tied to a tree before the bear, or whatever it was, disemboweled him? The thought was unsettling. We sat in an uncomfortable silence for several minutes and we nearly had a heart attack when a twig snapped in the night. There was a short, huffling sound and the antlers of a large deer poked over the top of a bush. We breathed a sigh of relief when we saw the antlers. The deer was just as scared of us as we were of it and after a minute we heard it move away through the bush. You know, said Toffer, for some reason that reminds me of something that happened to me a little while ago. Toffer turned to me. Do you remember that weird guy at the Order of the Arrow ordeal? Vaguely, I replied. I remember you talking about him, although I never actually saw him. That's right, you didn't actually see him because we were on different work crews. Anyhow, we were at our Order of the Arrow ordeal. Toffer turned to Anne. It's a kind of initiation ceremony where we spent the weekend working. We weren't supposed to talk unless absolutely necessary. To make a long story short, there was this strange guy who showed up at my work crew and just watched us. Since we couldn't talk, we couldn't ask him who he was or what he was doing there. He just stood in the trees by where we were working and looked at us. It was really creepy. I had to run back to the dining hall at one point to use the restroom and he actually followed me for a little while until I ran into one of the scoutmasters. I probably should have told someone about the guy, but I thought I would get into trouble for talking. Well, that is a little creepy, admitted Joe. I probably wouldn't consider it to be the scariest thing that ever happened to me, though. You didn't see this guy, said Toffer. It was the way he looked at you. He looked at us the way a snake watches a rat before eating it. The reason I thought of this story just now is because of those noises that Anne mentioned. That night when we were walking back from the big campfire, I remember hearing some kind of weird animal. It sounded like a cross between a lion and a hyena. Is that what those hikers recorded on the trail? I'm not sure, replied Anne. The sound my dad heard really gave him the creeps. He wouldn't let me listen to it. At this point, there was another sound in the forest. This one was unfortunately all too familiar to the four of us. It was the unmistakable sound of Kyle's voice, followed by a feminine giggle from whoever was with him. 
A minute later, Kyle stepped into the firelight with a dark-haired girl who was clearly drunk, leaning against his shoulder. "'Well, hello, everybody!' exclaimed Kyle in a voice that was just a little bit too loud. I was fairly sure that he had been drinking as well. I hope I am not interrupting anything. When he said this, Kyle made sure to leer at Joe and Anne. Anne narrowed her eyes angrily and looked as if she were about to reply with a snappy retort until Joe placed his arm on her shoulder. After a second, she relaxed. Kyle had spent the previous summer trying to seduce Anne to no avail. Then at the very end of last summer, Anne's little brother Tyler had died in an accident. He had been two years younger than us and had worshipped the ground that Joe walked on. He had been at camp with us and had been one of the kindest souls that I had ever met. He had gone out for a late night walk and had fallen down a ravine where he broke his neck to the point where he was almost decapitated. I still remember seeing the paramedics take out his body the next morning. The strangest thing about the situation is that the most vivid thing in my memory was the Captain America t-shirt that Tyler had been wearing. The shirt was all torn up and covered in blood, and the image still haunts my dreams. In the aftermath of the tragedy, it was rumoured that Kyle had taken advantage of Anne's emotional state for his own purposes although we never dared to ask her if this was true. Anne had only just started to recover a couple of months previously when she had started dating Joe, and every lecherous look that Kyle gave her was like a slap in the face. "'What are you all up to?' Kyle asked, pretending not to notice the death glares we were giving him. "'Oh, and by the way, this is Whitney,' he said, gesturing to the girl hanging onto his shoulder. She was hiking along the trail and got lost, I offered to put her up for the night until she can get her bearings. After all, there is a murderer on the loose. Whitney giggled again and the rest of us tried not to visibly cringe. We were kind of telling each other scary stories about things that have happened to us, Joe said quietly. I guess it's my turn now. Joe let out a harsh guffaw. Is this going to be about poor baby Tyler again, he jeered. At this point, even I started to stand up to show Kyle exactly what I thought of him. Thankfully, for my well-being, Kyle was pale and scrawny but surprisingly strong. Toffer stopped me. He's not worth it, he said quietly. What is Kyle talking about, said Anne? Did something happen between you and Tyler? Joe winced. It was clear that he had not been planning on telling this particular story. It's kind of complicated, he began. The thing is... I suffer from something called sleep paralysis. It's when you wake up from a dream and you are conscious, but you can't move. Sometimes you also see strange hallucinations. The most often hallucinations for me are long-fingered shadows with way too many teeth. I would wake up at three in the morning and not able to move. After a few minutes, I would hear my closet door open or something move under my bed and then the shadow creatures would appear. Sometimes they would actually touch me. Even though I know they aren't real, I can still feel them brushing against my face or sitting on my chest. I had one of these episodes the night Tyler died. I woke up but couldn't move or talk. I saw Tyler sit up in bed. I saw him look at his phone and then go outside. He must have gotten a text message or something. The point is that I saw a bunch of the shadow creatures follow him outside. I know it doesn't make sense. There's no way I could have warned him. 
I just feel like I could have stopped his accident, and I couldn't. By this point in the story, there were tears streaming down both Joe and Anne's faces. Anne gently put her arm around her boyfriend's shoulder, and the two of them quietly wept. The silence lasted for another minute before Kyle interrupted again. Well, he said, that is all well and fine, but I have a real story to tell. It is the tale of what happened to Ron Grayson. Kyle paused dramatically to let the words sink in. Ron Grayson had been a local lawyer ten years previously who had one day vanished off the face of the earth. They found his car abandoned in a supermarket parking lot and his cell phone in the river a few miles away, but there was never anybody found. The incident was one of our area's biggest mysteries and even ten years later, just about everybody had a theory about what had happened to him. The prevailing theory was that he had either committed suicide or run afoul of some inner-city mob boss, but there was no conclusive proof either way. No one knows what happened to him, I said. The man could have been abducted by aliens, for all we know. Kyle smirked. That's what you think. See, this is the thing. Remember two years ago, where I spent a couple of days in jail on those drug charges? We remembered. The charges had eventually been dropped. My cellmate was this guy who worked for the Mafia as a hired killer. He was there waiting for trial. We raised our eyes sceptically. I'm serious. This guy was a hardcore killer. He was a mess, though. Apparently there was this hit that went wrong a few years back. He and his partner were supposed to off this lawyer who was filing charges against his boss. So his boss sends my buddy and his partner to make the problem go away. The thing is, my buddy's old partner is like a cat. He likes to play with his food before he eats it. Anyhow, he convinces my buddy to kidnap this kid. They found some homeless kid up in Pittsburgh that no one would miss, and they bring him down here. They have this lawyer tied up in the woods, and they tell him they will let him go as long as he shoots the kid. Sure enough, this lawyer guy shoots the kid to save his skin. The problem is that the lawyer is a horrible shot, so this kid doesn't die right away. He starts screaming bloody murder, and then something in the forest starts screaming back. My buddy gets spooked, so he gets in the car and leaves his friend to finish the job. The thing is, his friend never comes back. My buddy goes to the place they had the lawyer the next day, and there is nothing there. No lawyer, no kid, no psycho killer for hire, and no monster. Anyway, that's how this guy told me the story. The next day, he hangs himself in his cell. I get out and I look up any disappearances around the time this guy says this stuff happened. And I see that Ron Grayson disappeared around that time. So there, you have it. The lawyer was eaten by a monster. Maybe it was the same one that killed those hikers. Once again, there was a sound in the bushes and we all jumped. Off in the distance, we heard a faint howl. At the time I figured that it was a coyote, but now I'm not so sure. A second later a light shone through the tree branches and there was a strange rumbling sound. We all let out a breath of relief when Bert's golf cart came puttering around the bend in the trail. Huffing and puffing, as if he had just run a marathon, Bert heaved himself out of the golf cart and sat down by the fire. Reaching into his pocket he pulled out a peppermint candy and tossed it to Kyle. Toffer held out his hand for a candy as well, but Bert seemed not to see him. Well, that's that, Bert sighed. 
I just finished a run through of camp and everything is more or less in good shape, although Troop 83 did leave a giant archway in the middle of their campsite for some reason. I guess that means we should be able to get on the road pretty early tomorrow then, I said. I'm looking forward to a few days rest before I head back to school for the semester. I think it's your turn to tell a scary story, Joe said to me, and so I began my tale. Kyle's story actually reminded me of something I began. I think I actually saw Ron Grayson at this very camp a year or so back. Ah, he's dead, interrupted Kyle. Didn't you hear my story? Well, it must have been his ghost then, I continued. It was really weird at any rate. I was doing a night patrol of the camp last summer, and I thought I saw someone down by the trading post. I just caught a glimpse of him as he walked around the corner. I thought it was weird, and I didn't recognise him as one of the scoutmasters, so I decided to investigate a little bit more. I walked up onto the trading post porch, and there was this man standing in the corner looking out over the lake. There were a few scouts on the other side of the lake, and the man was watching them. We stood there like that for a while, him watching the scouts and me watching him. Then he turned around suddenly and saw me. Then I swear I'm not making this up. He grew a giant pair of antlers, screeched at me, and took off into the forest. I thought about telling someone about this at the time, but I thought no one would believe me. The point is, I was reading the paper a few months ago and I saw some news report about Ron Grayson and they had a picture of him. I realised that he was the man I saw on the porch. Well, at least before he grew that pair of antlers and did his best Nazgul imitation in my face. I actually have a picture of the article on my phone if you guys want to see it. I passed my phone around to the others in the group and when it reached Toffer, he went as white as a sheet. What's wrong, I asked. Nothing, he replied. When he saw that none of us believed him, he reluctantly continued. It's just that that lawyer looks an awful lot like that guy who was following me around in my story. My turn, my turn, cried Whitney, who was still very much intoxicated. I was hiking the Midstate Trail last year, just like I am doing now, in fact. And one night I tried some new... She cast a suspicious glance at Bert and then continued in a quieter tone of voice. Stuff, I tried some new stuff. It gave me the biggest high of my life, but it also made me see some strange things. So anyhow, here I am in the middle of the woods and I have to go to take a crap. So I go off by myself and take care of business. Keeping in mind during this entire thing, the trees are trying to tell me the meaning of life. Anyhow, I am on my way back when I see Count Dracula fighting with Captain America on top of this hill. I realise that this is just the drugs, of course, but I still don't want them to see me. I can hear them yelling at each other. Captain was telling the Count to stay away from my sister, or something like that. It was weird. Eventually, Count Dracula hits Captain America over the head with a stick and then throws him down the other side of the hill. At this point I decided to get out of there, so I slip away. On my way back to the campsite I see all kinds of crazy things. The trees started trying to attack me. These little goblins would laugh at me from behind the rocks. I think I also remember a bunch of bears and deer ballet dancing. It was a weird night. I'm tired. I think I'm going to sleep now. With that Whitney lay down and began to snore. None of us quite knew what to make of that story. 
Bert philosophically stared into the fire before tossing Kyle another peppermint candy. For some reason, Joe seemed particularly disturbed. She said she saw Captain America getting thrown down a hill by a vampire, he mused. The image of a blood-stained T-shirt sprang into my mind. You don't think that... Oh, for crying out loud, yelled Kyle. He seemed to be very unnerved by the story as well. The look in his eye resembled that of a frightened rabbit who had just detected danger. You guys aren't taking that load of bullshit seriously, are you? She had ingested enough drugs to kill Charlie Sheen. Nothing she saw had any basis in what was really going on. Are we sure of that? murmured Bert. There may have been a kernel of truth hidden in her story. Come on, Whitney, we are leaving, Kyle said roughly, shaking Whitney awake. Not now, Edward, I want to sleep. She replied and then promptly went back to snoring. This response seemed to anger Kyle even more. Swearing at all of us, he stormed away from the fire into the night. Did he really kill my brother? asked Anne quietly. We will probably never know for sure, said Bert. Whitney probably doesn't recognise what she saw consciously. No jury in the world would convict based on something that may have been a drug hallucination. Although the fact that she just called Kyle Edward is telling. I saw Kyle and Tyler having a heated discussion the day before he died. I mentioned this fact to the police, but the coroner ruled the death an accident and that was that. So he is just going to get away with murder, said Toffer angrily. Where is the justice in that? Sometimes there is no justice in this life, replied Bert. Sometimes we have to wait for the next life for our reward or punishment. In this case, however, I think the situation will take care of itself. It's getting late and I have a scary story to tell you as well before we go to bed. It's about a creature that was once called the Wendigo. As Bert began his story, the fire seemed to die down and a cold wind sent a chill down our spines. Whitney let out a whimper in her sleep and curled up into a ball close to the coals of the fire. The shadows at the edges of the light seemed to stretch closer and the insects and night birds fell silent as if they too were listening to Bert tell his story. The Native Americans would tell their children tales about the Wendigo. They sometimes called him a forest giant. The story goes that the Wendigo could change his shape so that no one could see him coming or kill him. The legend also goes that a man could become a Wendigo if he ever ate human flesh. That is how the old stories used to go. When I was a lot younger, I met a medicine man when I was doing some work on a reservation. He told me some more stories about these creatures. He said that a man didn't have to be a cannibal in order to be turned into a Wendigo anymore, although that was still a good way to become one if anyone ever wanted such a thing. The man said that the Wendigo was in constant pain as a result of the curse. As the years went by, the pain would get worse and worse until it drove the Wendigo into a frenzy where it killed anything in its path. The medicine man said that there was only one way for the Wendigo to stop the pain and that was for the Wendigo to attack someone who had been as wicked as it was, someone with innocent blood on their hands and turned them into a Wendigo. Then the pain would fade for a while and eventually the original Wendigo would die after it had created a few new Wendigos. It was very difficult to kill a Wendigo, although there are certain things that attract or repel them. They don't like light and the smell of garlic, for example, while fresh blood 
peppermint and the sound of young children will attract them like moths to a flame. A few years after the Second World War, there was a little boy who claims that he saw a Wendigo. He had gone out on an overnight backpacking trip with his troop when he became very sick. One of the scoutmasters had to drive him back in the dark, along with one of the other scouts because of the buddy system. Now this scoutmaster was not a nice man. He had only recently come to the United States and he claimed that he was Dutch. However, a lot of people who were actually German claimed to be Dutch in order to come into the United States. We were not that friendly towards Germans, seeing as we had just fought a war against them. The rumour in the scout troop was that this particular adult leader was one of those Germans who had pretended to be Dutch. The rumour further went that not only was this man a German, but he had also been a Nazi. At any rate, the leader and the two boys were driving along the back roads towards the hospital when all of a sudden they see this man standing in the centre of the road. The adult leader swerves the car to avoid this guy and ends up crashing into a tree. One of the scouts was knocked unconscious in the crash, but the leader and the sixth scout were still all right. The leader gets out of the car and goes over to where the man is standing and starts to yell at him. The man doesn't say anything. He just stares at the leader and the two scouts. The sixth scout is back at the car and managed to drag his friend out of the wrecked vehicle where the scoutmaster had left him. At this point, the man in the road grows this big pair of antlers and opens his mouth wide. The scout can see that all of the man's teeth are at least three times the size of a normal man's teeth and are very sharp. The strange man jumps on the scoutmaster and begins to tear him apart before coming after the boys. Luckily, the one scout managed to find a large hollow log and pulled his friend inside before the monster could get to them. The Wendigo spent the rest of the night clawing at the log, trying to get at the boys. Around dawn, it went back up to the road and crouched over the body of the scoutmaster. The boy then swore that he saw the dead leader stand up and follow the monster into the woods. The sun came up and a search party found the two scouts a few hours later. The little boy spent the rest of his life looking up information on all kinds of monsters and travelling the world to hear the various stories about them so he could find out what happened to him that night. There was a long silence after Bert finished the story. Finally, Whitney let out a drunken giggle. Apparently, she had woken up partway through the story. The scary stories were supposed to be true stories that actually happened to us, she said. Sorry, said Bert after a slight pause. My mistake. Well, we should probably turn in, said Joe. We have a long day tomorrow. Sounds good to me, said Bert. He turned to Whitney. Do you have somewhere to stay tonight? I have a campsite a few miles up the trail, she responded. You know what, said Bert? You can sleep on the sofa in the health lodge. Something tells me that tonight isn't a good night to be out in the woods alone. Bert helped Whitney into the golf cart and the two drove off down the trail. In the distance there was a very faint sound that could have been a human scream that was suddenly silenced. Shortly afterwards there was a strange call that sounded like a cross between a lion's roar and a hyena's laugh. Toffa, Joe, Anne and I decided to share a tent that last night. I had a funny feeling that we would never see Kyle again. And we didn't. Toffa claims that it's probably because he ran away for fear of getting arrested for murder. I am not so certain. That last night in the woods I remember drifting off to sleep with dreams full of antlered men.
and peppermint candies. The bandwidth for the podcast is supplied by TalkShoe at talkshoe.com. The show notes are held at the Origins podcast website, origins.info. And we have a Facebook site, it's facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy. And I'd also like to thank these kind people for making a donation to the podcast. Your help is greatly appreciated, everyone. Kelly Cook, Luke Husum, Jolene McLeod, Sean Yarnell, Geoffrey Shaw, Steve Weaver, Lyndall Smart and Jeff Chapman. As I said, your help is greatly appreciated, everyone. So until next time, whenever that may be, this is Paul saying bye for now, everyone, and keep well. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.